Uh, welcome everyone to LPP, the Legal Privilege Podcast by Herbert Smith Freehills, where we're going to unpack some of the tricky concepts of legal professional privilege and apply some key privilege principles for practical scenarios. My name's Graham Johnson and I recently retired as a partner at the firm. I'm now though a consultant in the disputes practice uh, with quite a bit of experience in commercial litigation and public law and I'm joined by two others. Hi, I'm Kate Cale. I'm a partner in the Sydney Disputes Practice and I do a bit of work in contentious regulatory proceedings and investigations amongst other things. Hi, I'm Eunice Park. I'm a senior associate in the disputes team at HSF, uh, specialising in commercial litigation and investigations, particularly in the governance space. So in the last episode, some of our colleagues discussed common interest privilege and joint privilege and touched on confidentiality arrangements. Uh, but today we're going to explore the role of privilege in day-to-day -day communications. And we'll start by taking a look at how privilege can be maintained in both internal and external communications. Then we'll delve into some common privilege uh, pitfalls and provide some tips on how they can be avoided. Uh, then we'll return to the hypothetical whistleblowing investigation scenario that we've covered in our previous podcasts to see how the privilege principles might play out in a practical sense. But before we get to that, uh, Kate, are you able to provide a brief uh, recap and reminder of privilege in the context of day-to-day -day communications? As our listeners will know, a communication or document is only protected by legal professional privilege if it is first confidential and second is brought into existence for the sole or dominant purpose of either providing or obtaining legal advice or for use in actual or anticipated litigation. The application of legal professional privilege in day-to-day -day business communications is made more complex given there are often multiple purposes for communications and multiple senders and recipients of a single communication, as well as given the high volume of information flow, both internally and externally. Okay, so there's some general principles, but Eunice, can you just tell us a bit about how privilege applies to internal communications? Sure. Let's start by considering as a threshold question when internal communications involving in-house counsel may be subject to LPP. Our listeners will be aware that LPP can apply to communications with or prepared by in-house legal counsel. And generally, a communication involving an in-house lawyer may be privileged if the in-house lawyer is consulted in a professional capacity in relation to a legal matter, the communications arise from the lawyer-client relationship, and the communications otherwise satisfy the test for LPP. That is, it's confidential and for the dominant purpose of obtaining or receiving legal advice or for use in litigation. Now, the key element is whether the in-house legal counsel is acting in a legal advisor capacity in the relevant communication. That's because, as we all know, in-house counsel can often wear several different hats and play more than a purely legal role. They may also have an executive, commercial or operational role, and any communications with them wearing their non-legal hats are unlikely to be privileged. An example of someone wearing multiple hats as an in-house general counsel is someone who's also the company secretary. 
where communications are sent or received by that person in the COSEC capacity, LPP is unlikely to apply. LPP claims made over in-house legal communications are often heavily scrutinised because there's a real question about what capacity the in-house lawyer was acting in. Were they acting in a legal or non-legal role? Where possible, best practice is to keep communications that may be privileged separate from those relating to non-legal, purely commercial or administrative matters. Be aware that the law of privilege may vary between different countries, so extra care needs to be taken if your communications span across different countries, as some jurisdictions don't recognise LPP applying to in-house legal communications in the same way that Australia does. Thanks, Eunice. So now we've recapped when in-house counsel communications may be privileged, but Kate, can you tell us about different types of internal communications that an in-house lawyer may encounter and whether or not they may be privileged? Of course. It's important to remember that what we are providing is only a general snapshot. Every privilege claim will ultimately turn on its facts. The first thing we'll deal with is internal communications. So it's important to bear in mind that internal communications, and in that bucket we're putting emails, calls, but also don't forget text messages and instant messages. Those internal communications that are copied to an in-house lawyer will not necessarily be privileged, particularly if they are directed to non-lawyers for some purpose other than obtaining legal advice or for litigation. Similarly, we wanted to say up front that marking an email as privileged or as LPP does not mean that privilege applies to that communication. So when is privilege unlikely to apply to an in-house communication? A common pitfall arises when an in-house lawyer is communicating not for the dominant purpose of legal advice or for use in litigation, but with their non-legal hat on. The following are some practical examples of when LPP is unlikely to apply because of that issue. So firstly, let's say there's an email chain between a member of the HR team and a payroll team member, which copies an in-house counsel for information only. That's unlikely to be privileged because it's unlikely to be for the dominant purpose of obtaining legal advice or litigation. Another scenario is a board paper from an in-house counsel who also has an executive function providing commercial advice. And the reason for that is that it's unlikely that the in-house counsel is acting in their legal capacity and the dominant purpose test is not met. Another example might be a report from an internal fact-finding investigation into the cause of an incident that's provided to various teams, including in-house counsel. The reason there is that it's unlikely to meet the dominant purpose test because the purpose of the investigation is purely fact-finding and there's no privilege in facts, and there could also be multiple purposes for which that investigation was undertaken. So one of the things we wanted to mention in that regard, because this is one of the most common scenarios that we get questions about and that we face day to day, is that up front it's really important to document the purpose and scope of an internal investigation to really sort of describe and understand the purpose for which it's being undertaken. Eunice, what about some examples of when LPP may apply to in-house communications? Sure. Some examples of when LPP may apply to in-house communications includes let's say firstly, a confidential file note that records a conversation between in-house counsel and an executive who is seeking legal advice. That's because it's likely to meet the dominant purpose test. 
Another example is when a draft contract is sent by an in-house lawyer to an executive for instructions. And there the reason is because the communication is likely for the dominant purpose of providing legal advice. That is, it's the communication by which instructions are being sought. Note though, the communication of that document once it's settled internally and sent to an external counterparty will no longer be privileged. And we'll discuss this later in the episode. Thirdly, minutes of part of a board meeting recording legal advice provided by an in-house lawyer may be privileged. But be aware that other parts of the board minutes may not be privileged. And lastly, emails between two in-house counsel discussing legal advice to be provided to an executive within the business. That communication will likely be for the dominant purpose of providing legal advice. Kate, I'm interested in your views on any other trickier examples of when LPP may or may not apply. Thanks, Eunice. I think there are more nuanced situations, definitely. One of the things that comes up for us regularly when we're reviewing documents for production to regulators is, for example, an in-house lawyer assisting a business team to gather documents together and information for the response to the statutory notice to a regulator. Some of those communications might in fact be subject to privilege. So for example, the in-house lawyer advising the team on how to interpret the notice or how to respond to aspects of the notice. Um, but the act itself of circulating responsive documents to be provided to the regulator or any communication with the regulator itself is unlikely to be subject to privilege. Eunice, what do you think the key takeaways are here? Where practical, the dissemination of privileged information should be limited to a need-to-know basis. So the more widely a communication is distributed, the less likely it will be considered to be confidential and the risk that it will be inadvertently disclosed to third parties also increases. In practice, that means following good document management and information security hygiene. It's also important to ensure the business understands where privilege does and does not apply, or they seek legal's input before disseminating communications if they're not sure. As we commonly see instances where, for example, the business copies a lawyer and thinks that that will make the communication privileged, or the business marks every communication as privileged or sometimes without prejudice. So I think uh, our listeners are probably appreciating that while some of the uh, general principles can be easily stated, uh, the application of them in particular factual circumstances uh, can be quite difficult. So uh, bearing that in mind, let's go back to the hypothetical whistleblower scenario that we had a look at in our earlier episodes. Uh, let me just remind you of that scenario. The in-house uh, lawyer had been asked to investigate a whistleblower report claiming a serious fraud by some employees in a large multinational company. And the CEO then asked the in-house lawyer to investigate the report's veracity and the legal consequences of the allegations. Uh, the CEO wanted the investigation to be completed as soon as possible and on a strictly privileged and confidential basis. Now, assume the in-house lawyer has prepared a report to the board, which briefs the board on various matters. And that report includes a summary of the whistleblower investigation and some preliminary legal advice on the legal risks and potential consequences arising. Then the in-house lawyer presents a recap of their legal advice, but orally to the board and that's recorded in the minutes. 
Now, the part of the board report and board minutes that records in-house lawyers' legal advice is likely to be privileged as it's a communication that is co both confidential and for the dominant purpose of providing a legal advice to the company. So, Kate, how about external communications and privilege? Yeah, as we discussed in episode three, legal professional privilege can be waived in a couple of ways. It might be expressly disclosed, either deliberately or by mistake, or there could be an implied waiver. An example of the latter would be where the substance or gist of legal advice is made public, or a business team has sent some advice it has received to an external party or regulator, for example, sending some advice on the applicability of tax laws to a particular income stream to the ATO. So difficulties often arise for us and clients often ask us about waiver of privilege uh, when dealing with opponents and regulators. Generally, any communications you have with opponents, for example, counterparties in a commercial negotiation or the other side in a litigation or a regulator will not be privileged. But sometimes circumstances may arise where it's tempting or even necessary to refer to legal advice to those third parties. But this should be approached very, very carefully, as we often find these disclosures will amount to a waiver of privilege. Here are some rules to keep in mind. Privilege will typically be waived where the gist, substance or conclusion of the privileged communication is published or communicated to an opponent or other third party. For example, you inform a third party or opponent that you have obtained legal advice that the company has not breached any laws. If you inform a third party or an opponent that the company has not breached any laws because X fact does not meet Y legal test without any reference to that being based on advice, you might be in some safer territory. Another example where uh, you might have an issue is where you issue a media release or an ASX announcement stating that you've received advice that you're likely to succeed in a litigation. A another way to do that with the same effect but a slightly different process is that you might use the media release to say that you'll vigorously defend the litigation and that you're confident in your position. And as you can see from that, it doesn't in, in fact refer to the advice at all. Another way is a document's produced that discloses the gist, substance or conclusion of the privileged communication, e.g. in due diligence. Just in relation to that due diligence context, the substance of the privileged communication may often be disclosed to potential acquirer or a joint venturer on a limited waiver basis in order to enable that third party to apprise themselves uh, before acquiring the company or before entering into any joint venture with them. And I should say our corporate colleagues get in touch with us about that very question almost weekly. So Eunice, what are some examples of when privilege will not be waived? Some examples of when privilege may not be waived include where you disclose that you've received legal advice without disclosing expressly or impliedly the substance of that legal advice, or you inadvertently disclose privileged material to a third party, but you take reasonable steps to protect its confidentiality once that's been detected. As we discussed earlier in episode three, it's possible for privileged communications to be disclosed to a third party for a limited and specific purpose, provided that the third party is required to treat the communications as confidential. In those circumstances, there will be a limited waiver in favour only of that third party. 
And in that instance, you should be very careful to make clear the basis upon which you are providing the privileged communication and state the limited purpose it is being used for. Graham, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, well, let's go back to the hypothetical scenario and see if we can apply some of this. So we'll assume that the board's been, of course, very impressed by the in-house lawyer's briefing and the legal advice on the whistleblowing complaint. So uh, a week later, uh, there, we find there's been a leak about the underlying fraud issues that are the subject of that complaint, and the regulator has heard about it. Uh, the regulator asked the company to assist them in their investigation by producing the company's books and records, including the investigation report prepared by the in-house lawyer, and also to answer a number of voluntary questions about the matter. So let's apply some of the key uh, LPP considerations to that. First thing to note is that the investigation report may be subject to a privileged claim if it records legal advice from the in-house lawyer on the legal risks and exposures arising from the allegations. But, this has been mentioned before, there's no privilege in facts alone. So if the report simply records factual findings, that may not be privileged. Again, one needs to examine the particular circumstances. Next, putting aside for a moment the validity of the privileged claim, there may be very good strategic reasons for the company to produce parts or all of the investigation report to the regulator. It might alleviate the regulator's concern. It might shortcut the regulator's investigation of the company. It might assist the company's relationship with the regulator. It may also assist in providing the regulator with a full factual matrix for it to proceed with its investigation. But ultimately, the company's response to the regulator has to depend on the facts, the legal risks, the reputational concerns, and the appetite relating to these. Finally, uh, another tricky question that may arise is whether uh, this is an instance where having considered all the relevant risks, it would be appropriate to publish the investigation report publicly and in full, thereby waiving privilege. Now that again will have to be considered on a case-by-case -case basis in light of all the potential legal and regulatory risks as against reputational risk. Being upfront and transparent to all stakeholders may be appropriate in certain circumstances. And there are recent examples out there of such disclosures, as in the instance of a major mining company publishing its report in a workplace culture, a large financial institution releasing its investigation to anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism financing compliance issues, and indeed its report in the board governance of AML and CTF obligations. But you should be aware that if privilege is waived over such a report, it may well lead to a waiver of drafts and communications about the report. So that also underscores the importance of always taking care as to how things are expressed, regardless of whether or not a communication is privileged. Okay, Kate, so what are some general tips for day-to-day -day communications? Thanks, Graham. The first thing we wanted to call out is that good document hygiene and document security goes hand in hand with best practices in terms of maintaining privilege. So think about who needs to receive the relevant communication. If you can avoid reply alls and forwards and instead consider who needs to know, that's a really good way to start. One tip we have practically for in-house lawyers is, do you need to reply all on a chain? Very often advice, requests for advice come to you in amongst a group of much 
uh, well, a number of people being on the communication, is it appropriate for you to just start a clean email and reply to that person who's made the request of you instead of engaging in a very long chain? I think Eunice and I would be very grateful to everyone out there who does that so that we can stop redacting multiple copies of email chains in documents that go to regulators. Another type of thing that you could think about is to think very hard at the outset about the content and purpose of documents before in-house legal creates a document or instructs the business to create a document, consider the purpose for which it's being created. If its dominant purpose is legal advice, then clearly mark the document as confidential and address it to the legal team. Think about which hat the in-house lawyer is wearing in respect of the relevant communication. Just one final thing that we wanted to mention for in-house lawyers as we wrap this up is about marking emails or documents confidential and privileged. Encourage your business teams and stakeholders to come to you and ask if they aren't sure when to mark an email or document confidential and privileged. If they aren't sure or you aren't sure, they can do so, but please remind them that while a label is a good way to alert someone to the potential of the communication being privileged, there are also some pitfalls. Firstly, marking lots of things confidential and privileged can mean that the effect of calling something out as privileged or potentially privileged is lost. And secondly, marking something as confidential and privileged doesn't make it so. That is, by labelling it in that way, it does not afford the protection against disclosure of that communication if privilege does not exist in the communication at all. Uh, thanks, Kate. They're, they're very helpful tips. Of course, we appreciate uh, that this, they aren't always necessarily so easy to apply consistently in the real world when things can be moving very quickly. But pausing for a moment to have a think of, about some of these issues may help. So thanks again both to um, you, Kate, and, and also Eunice. That brings us to the end of uh, this episode on privileged pitfalls in day-to-day -day internal and external communications. We hope you found it helpful. You can find more resources on our Legal Professional Privilege in Australia online hub and at hsf.com. And thanks very much for listening to us.